0: look we as the united states we cannot trade national security or human rights issues for climate goals it would be short-sighted it would undermine our position it would make us look weak it
1: is the week of September 20th, and welcome to episode 98 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues in national security and foreign policy. Today, we have our guest, Matthew Ferraro, NSI visiting fellow, senior counsel at Wilmer Hale, and former intelligence officer. Our newest panelists, Sarah Stewart, NSI visiting fellow and executive director of Silverado Policy Accelerator. Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director, and former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Lester Johnson, a senior fellow at NSI and former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and myself, Haley Lernahan, policy program coordinator at NSI.
2: So last week, there was a little messaging battle between President Biden and President Xi. Evidently, the two leaders had spoken by phone for about 90 minutes, and the possibility of a summit between the two of them was discussed. But the American version and the Chinese version of that conversation are very different. The Chinese say that President Biden asked for a face-to-face meeting and President Xi said no. The Biden team says a face-to-face meeting was discussed, but not scheduled, and say the Chinese version of the call is not accurate. Even Jake Sullivan was quoted by name on the matter. Other sources in the media unnamed say the Chinese version was accurate, and that China was looking for a better tone in the relationship before there is a face-to-face meeting between the two leaders. First, let's postulate that this entire episode, while pretty small beer in the grand scheme of things, is evidence of a larger issue, the Tension between the United States and China has grown substantially in the last few months, even with the departure of Donald Trump as president. So, Sarah, are you surprised by this? Did you not think, as I suspect many did, that the Biden administration would calm the diplomatic waters and we would have a lot fewer arguments about things like the content of presidential phone calls?
0: Thanks, Les. I mean, I have to say that I'm both surprised and I'm also not surprised at all. And I'll tell you why. So I think on the one hand, a lot of people assumed that Biden was going to go easier on China than Trump did. And, you know, Let's be honest, Trump set a pretty low bar when it came to diplomacy, and he did his level best to agitate the Chinese and the North Koreans and a few allies as well. But the the same line of thinking also harkens back to the days, I think, of the Obama administration and the pivot to Asia to counterbalance China through a major regional trade deal that didn't include the Chinese. But Obama was also working with the Chinese, you know, on on a range of of matters. I can remember being in a lot of the strategic and economic dialogue meetings. Um, and I think that there's definitely a camp who assumed Biden would sort of go back towards an Obama redux, right? On the other hand, the world has changed a lot since since the Obama days. And I don't think, Biden could just rewind the clock here. For, for all of the bluster, you know, Trump did push the envelope with the Chinese on some pretty significant long-standing irritants like IP theft and industrial market distorting subsidies. So I think, you know, Biden stepped in with, you know, Trump having teed up a lot of momentum on areas that frankly had been... Really important to the labor movement um, for a long time, and now Biden's got a worker-centric trade policy, and so moving away from some of those Trump-era policies is going to be really difficult. And he would look weak on trade, weak on human rights, and you know potentially lose whatever leverage that that Trump gained, um, which you know came at the expense of of, of businesses. You know who were were not uh, particularly excited about having high tariffs and and the like, you know for for uh, for a few years. So I mean, I, I guess I'm surprised and I'm not. I also think that given that the the labor movement had been you know advocates of things, for example, like you know trade measures against China for a long time. When the Trump administration came in and took on some of those measures, um, that was not your traditional free trade mentality, right? Um, That was a little bit of the Democrats' playbook. So now the Democrats are back in office and we haven't seen things change that much. Well, that's because there was four years of kind of pseudo-Democrat policies that were out there. Um, I think that, you know, I'll close by saying a major distinguishing factor, though, I think, um, between between Biden and Trump is, you know, Biden is trying to get a rallying cry of allies behind some of his policies, the, you know, recent events with France notwithstanding, whereas Trump really went at it more from a perspective of let's go unilateral and see if the allies can come in later. So there there are some differences, but...
2: Sarah, it's your it's your first time on the podcast, and I'm and I'm, not, I'm not gonna no that was great. I'm I'm not gonna pass up the opportunity to push back on you a little bit and say it's, it wasn't it wasn't just the French complaining about AUKUS, but it was also over the Afghanistan pullout. You know, there was a lot of talk from our yes. our best bestest and closest friend, uh, the British, uh, that we that our process there was not terrific. I mean, pulling back, are you a little and I'm totally putting you on the spot here, but are you a little surprised at the lack of diplomatic niceties, but also the the adherence to kind of multilateral norms and the, the idea of including your allies and friends in the decisions that you're making and doing things in a predictable manner. Like it's not it's not just this one little episode with she or even the the broader question of of AUKUS, the new uh, coalition between the US, Australia, and and the British was also our pull-out from Afghanistan. I mean, it's been a couple of things in a row here. Is it is it set a little funny with you?
0: Yeah. I mean, it again, I think that. I think that there's a lot of people who thought this was Obama redux. It's not. World has changed. It's not Trump redux. It's not Obama redux. You know, I think Biden administration is kind of taking things case by case. There's a bunch of things that they have done where they've embraced kind of like the multilateral thing. They rejoined Paris, you know, working on working on climate with everybody. But then you're right. I mean, there is, you know, the Afghanistan uh, situation and and the recent AUKUS situation. I think they're finding their footing a little bit, to be honest. And there's a lot being thrown at them and they're having to react. But I also think, you know what, the world is not just opening their arms back up to us, right? And maybe that's part of the, the, the thought process as well. You know, when Trump left, not everybody was like, okay, welcome home US, you know, so glad to have you here. A lot of people are thinking, what are you going to do? And I think you're right. There's been some mixed signals out there, and it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. All
2: right, Matthew, let's shift, uh, as as we premonished earlier, to this AUKUS question. The uh, Australia-United Kingdom-United States coalition It involves nuclear submarines. It's uh, many years forward-looking. It's been months in the making. High tech uh, exchanges are involved. There's a little bit of controversy. French are a little bit upset, but this is clearly designed to be a pivot to Asia, to use the term uh, from the Obama administration when the Obama administration tried to change its focus from the Middle East to uh, dealing with uh, our interests in the Indo-Pacific, this is this seems to be a more robust version of that pivot to Asia. Uh, that one back in the Obama administration, as I recall, involved sending some Marines to Australia. This this is even bigger than that. Is this is this going to be sustainable? And um, it, it, in a way that perhaps the Obama administration version wasn't. Is this going to be a thing that, that actually does enable the Biden administration to not focus as much on the Middle East and then and really bring to bear the, the U.S. bureaucracy and, and our diplomatic muscle to dealing with the, the challenge from China? What's your what's
3: your take? Sure. Thanks, Les. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. Wonderful to be here with you all. So this is, I think, a huge win. Uh, and I think we need to situate this as a major inflection point in uh, US-Australia relations, and indeed in our uh, posture in the Pacific. So let me make three quick points. First is one that you alluded to there, which is that I think you have to see this uh, as a major inflection point, but along along a continuum. It really did begin in the Obama administration with the placing of 1,200 Marines in Darwin on the north coast of Australia, and that's part of a, a joint training program for 25 years. So that's a major generational commitment for our presence in Australia. But second, like absolutely, this is a significant increase in the commitment of the United States and the United Kingdom to Australia, to our allies in the Western Pacific. These submarines can help protect the vital shipping routes to the South China Sea from China's encroachment. They can protect, most importantly, Taiwan and Japan, which are the keystones in the security architecture of Maritime Asia. And third, and I think this probably doesn't get quite as much play, this deal shows with stunning clarity a turnabout in allied thinking. When Scott Morrison became Prime Minister of Australia three years ago, he said that Australia doesn't have to choose between maintaining close relations with China and the United States. Well, three years on, it looks like he chose, he chose the United States. And China has been bullying Australia for a while with economic sanctions and with demands that Australia change 14 of its domestic laws. sort of pause on that for a moment. Imagine getting a demand from China, you have to change your domestic law. And this is blowback. Taiwan has reacted notably as well, announcing on September 16 a proposal to spend over $8 billion in the next five years on missiles, ships, and other arms to repel a possible Chinese invasion. These developments are important in my mind because China's rise to hegemonic status in the Pacific will only be prevented by a conglomeration of allies. And they need to choose to stand with us against Chinese domination and to share the burden of doing so. Beijing realizes this, and that's why one of the reasons anyway, why their reaction has been so outraged.
2: Jamil, I know what you're thinking.
3: You're thinking about
2: 50 years ago when President Nixon began the process of pulling American troops out of Vietnam in order to not convey to the world American weakness. He at the same time launched the secret diplomacy with China that led to a dramatic change in the geopolitics of the Cold War. And it was a Uh, And in a way was his own kind of pivot from defeat to the next possible victory. How much do you think now, 50 years later... This AUKUS announcement is going to be able to is going to enable President Biden to pivot away from the Afghanistan fiasco of a withdrawal, and more towards a forward looking, positive approach in the world to an American priority where we can be successful.
4: Well, look, I think I agree with with uh, Matthew um, and Sarah. This is an important moment, um, and that and that going forward, this effort is the right thing to do. I mean, I think that building up the Quad and our relationship with India and Japan and Australia and providing a, a nuclear-capable or nuclear-powered uh, submarines as part of that effort um, in the region to change the balance of power and to to ensure the balance of power remains one that is uh, proactive and in an American interest. Um, you know, at the same time, you know, is it, is it enough to overcome the challenges we, we created for ourselves, the self-inflicted wounds uh, that we created from the way in which we, we withdrew from Afghanistan? Put aside whether you think we should remain in Afghanistan long-term or not. Let's assume we've agreed, we've all agreed with the last three presidents, uh, which I don't agree with, by the way, but let's say we've agreed the last three presidents that we should leave Afghanistan behind. Um, the way in which we departed, the, the, the leaving behind now, as we know, of more than a thousand Americans, uh, both green card holders and citizens, uh, the complete abandoning of over 20,000 SIVs, special immigrant visas, other Afghans who helped us Afghan allies, um, is something that it will be hard to overcome, right? One submarine deal and the French getting upset about it, I mean, I, it's certainly a, it's certainly you know interesting headlines. Um, um, and look, at the end of the day, it, it does matter what we do with China. But China sees our weakness in Afghanistan, uh, and they see our behavior in Afghanistan, as do, by the way, all of our allies. And it isn't made up for by one nuclear sub deal with with, with a close ally, to Australia. It's important, the right thing to do. Uh, but does it make up for the the catastrophic withdrawal that we engaged in, and the the abandoning of our real responsibilities, both moral and 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 you know, appropriateness. Uh, No, it
2: doesn't. All right. Let me throw this uh, next question open to everyone and assess, please, if you will, the overall success of Biden's approach to China thus far. Is it is it different? Is it better? Uh, Is it more uh, coherent and more sustainable than the previous presidents? What's the what's your assessment of the current U.S. approach to China right now? Sarah, go ahead.
0: I can jump in. Um, I mean, I, I think I've laid some of this out already, but I think I'm not sure what the China policy is yet, to be honest. So it's hard to make a full assessment until we see what's gonna come down the pike. Right now, I think we've seen a lot of reactionary moves, um, a couple of planned moves, but they don't seem to me to be fitting into a puzzle that all quite. Make sense. I think one of the first things that I'd like to see is, you know, something public that lays out what the strategy is across a host of a host of issues, right? And this was an issue that I had, you know, under the last administration as well. So it's not unique to the to the Biden folks. But how are we knitting together the full strategy, when we look at the financial Sector and how Wall Street's dealing with China to human rights abuses in Xinjiang to trade, uh, you know, tariffs and, and export controls to our more strategic interests with allies and with China to climate change. What's the overarching strategy? I'm not sure I know what it is yet. What I can say is that from what we've seen, it's a little ad hoc. And I think it's sending mixed signals. And I think there is no room for us to look weak on these issues. We need to be partnering with allies. We need to be sending clear signals to our allies, to our adversaries about where we stand on all of this, because this is the sort of next, you know, next battleground, not necessarily militarily, but this is, this is the great power competition. We need to figure out where we stand and make it clear.
4: Jamil? yeah, look, I totally agree with Sarah that the that the policy is still unclear. Um, you know, on one hand, you see the Biden administration appearing to get tough, uh, talking tough on human rights issues and the like, um, uh, leaving in place on the trade measures, and then uh, you see sort of this this hiccup with the with the summit. Right, we want to meet with them, we don't want to meet with them. They they pushed us, they pushed back on it. We didn't really offer it. it it's 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 the problem with having a sort of you know, want to be softer policy. I think that at the end of the day, a more diplomatic approach than the Trump administration took is the right one uh, when it comes to our global relations, but perhaps less so when it comes to our adversaries, right? Um, Being nice and soft and touchy-feely with our adversaries uh, may look good to the Europeans, but it may not help us, their adversaries, right? And so I actually think that uh, in a lot of ways, um, uh, the Trump uh, tough talk uh, when it came to countries like China uh, mattered a lot. Um, and it actually moved the American public in the right direction. We now see uh, a real sort of uh, agreement between uh, Democrats and Republicans and broad swaths of the American public when it comes to China issues, perhaps not the NBA, but we can leave them out because they're economic incentives, um, you know, but and, and maybe other big businesses who need to learn a lesson about what it means to be uh, overly supportive of, of uh, authoritarian regimes uh, that intern a million people in, in, in gulags. Um, and maybe we need to hold to account for that. Um, but But look, I think that, you know, President Trump's tough talk and and the experience of COVID and PPE and pharmaceutical precursors and all that has brought the American people around to a point of view on on China that I think is uh, much more unified than it has been in the past. And now the question is, is can can President Biden capitalize on that uh, to make a difference? And he hasn't shown yet the aggressiveness uh, with which he ought to take advantage of this now you know sort of large unanimity on capital and amongst the American public.
3: Matthew. So, I'm going to uh I guess I have to disagree since this is a podcast. I think y'all are not being nearly bullish enough on on the Biden administration and I think that there's there's a certain temptation to confuse the peripheral with the principal, right? The central and the peripheral. Like it, the, the the disagreement over whatever over this summit, whether who said what to whom is is not important. What's important is a major Uh, nuclear arms nuclear submarine deal with australia that is going to fortify the balance of power uh in our favor in the western pacific for years to come you know what what is important is um the fact that we that, that that there is administration support for major legislation in Congress that is meant to be, you know, counter China bills, anti-competition bills, or pro-competition, but, you know, uh, pro-competition, but to beat China in a competition in the future, like those are the major important things. Selling $8 billion worth of hardware if this happens to Taiwan, that is significant. Uh, Some of these other issues are peripheral, but I I do think that there is a bipartisan consensus uh, in the United States among serious members of both parties that it is central to American interests to counter the malign intentions of China through a whole of government approach. I think that focuses a lot on countering the exploitation of US technology by China and our open markets countering China's military modernization, Beijing's buildup in Asia, the bullying of its neighbors, and I have to say, I was curious, so I, in preparation for our podcast, I looked at what the National Defense Strategy of 2018 and what the interim strategic guidance of the Biden administration released was, and they're like strikingly similar, right? The NDS 2018 warns that China seeks Indo-Pacific he- regional hegemony in the near term and displacement of the US to achieve global preeminence in the future. And what does the Biden administration strategic guidance say? It warns at length against Chinese aggression and its, quote, threats to our collective security, prosperity, and democratic way of life. I will say this a little bit to Jamil's point. I think I think you have to differentiate a bit between the Trump administration's bureaucracy and what President Trump himself said. Right? There was there was a certain through line between indeed even the Obama administration, the Trump bureaucracy and the Biden bureaucracy and what our policy is going to be and what President Trump himself said, President Trump is capricious, he's addled, his views on China veered from demagogic to acquiescent if he thought Beijing could help his political fortunes or indeed his literal fortunes. We can recall some of his, uh, he was ready to sell Hong Kong and Xinjiang down the river if he thought he could secure favorable ag deals that would help his 2020 reelection. And we recall, I recall vividly, when his daughter was granted trademarks in China and loans were approved for businesses tied to the Trump Organization. So if you sort of discount his uh, ping-ponging around, I think there are similarities and it's largely for the good. I think we should celebrate the fact that there's in all of our polarized and bilious times that there's something we actually seem to agree on.
2: So I, I'll just uh, opine uh, briefly here that I think the uh, all all the points Matthew made rather eloquently about the issues of the last president and his mercurial I'm I'm trying to put the slightly more positive spin on his mercurial approach to public diplomacy. Uh, that ridiculous in fact, might be a better word. ridiculous uh, also works, that in fact, the Biden policy was basically written by the Trump administration. That Joe Biden is carrying out in perhaps a more systematic way a policy that began in the Trump administration. It's a phenomenon that uh, I think all of us who are either in or pretty close to foreign policy world realize, but it, it really hasn't gotten out there to the the general public beyond uh, the inside baseball crowd. That this is this is basically a continuation of the last four years, and and that's the reason we're seeing these kind of ridiculous arguments over things like what was the TikTok on the call between the two leaders, which was a feature of the last administration, I think that a lot of us didn't think we'd see in this one. All right, Jamil, go ahead. Well, I I do want to say one thing, which I do think that 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 public
4: statements and and public posture matter. And and while I agree with Matthew, that at times Donald Trump, you know, vacillated and expressed, you know, an an excess amount of interest in the way that Xi Jinping uh, governed and, and, and sort of appreciated it and Yes, all the stuff with with the trademarks or whatever. But at the end of the day, right, the overall message of the Trump administration, at least towards the end of the administration in particular, was China bad, China a problem. And the problem is, is that the Biden administration, while maybe carrying that, that message out, isn't nearly as aggressive vocally uh, in public about that. And they ought to be. There's nothing wrong with that. That is what drives the American people crave leadership in this space. And this is an area where the president agrees with them, and he can lead, right? Instead, of leading on things like like withdrawing from Afghanistan in a, in a sprint to the finish, you know, um, and let the Taliban have control with, with, of, of of Afghanistan on September 11th, thinking that's going to we'll get him credit with the American people. Go after China. Be public about it. Be aggressive. Be a president, you know. And I, and I just don't see that happening right now because the president, on one hand, gets angry and and frustrated and wants to tell the American people how to you know how to deal with how to deal with vaccinations. Um, and how to deal with masks, and how to deal with um, Afghanistan, and how we need to get out. But on China, well, this is what we need to play behind closed doors a little quietly, and let the Chinese figure it out. But we're going to be sort of, we're going to be sort of, you know, you know, softer on that front. I just don't get it.
3: Can I two finger that, Les? Two finger it, baby. Can I? All right. So r- real quick on that. I mean, I um, uh, I disagree with some of what you said, Jamil. Uh, I do think in differentiated credibility, I'm not sure our credibility is, like our support for Taiwan is really questioned when we Pull out of Afghanistan, but let's put that wait. to the side for a moment. I will agree we'll, with you. Let's talk about. I will agree. With, wait. Uh, well, no. I, I think it's. I think it's true. To, I mean, when we left Vietnam ten years before I was born, I don't think that people honestly thought that we were going to abandon Berlin, right? I mean, I just think that there that there are different co- credibility's context deter- d- determinant. I don't think that everyone thinks that. What we've been saying we were doing for decades, which is to say leave Afghanistan, really affects what people think we're going to do in Taiwan. But I do want to get to something where we do agree. And I do think the Biden administration should do something very specific, which is we should be clearer what the stakes are I think about China. I think we talk very gauzily about threats to the rules based order, to international law and all of that stuff. But what does it really mean for China to become the preeminent power in the wealthiest part of the world in Asia? Like, what does that actually mean for American way of life? And I think we see that sort of writ small with what happens in Hollywood now, where, you know, in Top Gun 2, Tom Cruise's jacket's no longer going to have patches for his missions in Taiwan and Japan because China's upset about that, right? I mean, like, that's sort of like... Exactly. But what does it even... But what does it mean when, exactly. So I, I think we need to be, maybe be much more specific. Like, What does it mean when um, they're called the shot? And I have to say, I was listening to a podcast by an old friend named Bridge Colby. So I'll plug, uh, plug him in his new book, Strategy of Denial. And he said this, and I thought it was exactly right. So this is an area where I do think, and it's not just, I, I, I the administration, should do it because they're, of course, the president uh, and in charge. But I think all parties should talk very specifically about what does it mean to have um, a totalitarian state, which is the Chinese government, in charge of the wealthiest p- part of the world. Like what does that mean for your pocketbook? And in a weird way, I think that people understand that when they see you know steel closures and all of that in a sort of visceral way, but it would be better if we could enunciate it more clearly. All right, I'll pause.
4: Well can I can I bring Sarah in on this conversation though? Because because I want to I want to get Sarah's thought on this, which is Matthew made this really eloquent point about how you can't connect what we did in Afghanistan to what we what we might do in Taiwan. But let's be serious, Sarah, do you think anybody thinks that we're really going to defend Taiwan if if that the Biden administration, much less the Trump administration, or maybe even the Obama administration, but certainly not the Trump or Biden administration, are going to defend Taiwan if, if China comes across the straits? What are the odds of that happening?
0: This is the million-dollar question, Jamil. Um, I think it's a great question. Um, I think we've committed publicly to our defense of Taiwan, to our defense of democracy. But we've also, under this administration, have also said that we're not walking back from our one China policy. So I think we have to ask ourselves, what would it take for the U.S. to intervene militarily? Now, if if, if China does kind of like Hong Kong part two, is it just sanctions again? Or are we coming in? Um, what if China, you know, were to step in and cut off, for example, um, U.S. supply to advanced chips made in Taiwan? Does that sort of tip the balance? Um, is it a naval blockade? What is it exactly? I'm right. not sure. I'm not sure that I know. I, I think that I don't know. I don't even know if the, <laughs> the administration knows exactly. But, um, you know, I, I'd like to think that with high enough stakes, we would, but it's unclear.
2: One of the other issues here is that both parties have been trashing uh, the U.S. role in the global order on a regular basis. Uh, both both uh, The leaders of both parties want to pull back from our commitments abroad. They want to refocus, I'm using air quotes, refocus on efforts as home, at home as if our international efforts were not directly related to our prosperity and way of life here at home. The two are inextricably linked. Both parties have been willing to just throw that away, and they're not willing to make the very hard argument that, hey, we're in Afghanistan. It's good for us to be in Afghanistan, or we are pursuing free multilateral free trade deals like the Trans-Pacific Partnership because that it is in our interest to do so. Both parties have given up on that argument, making it a much heavier lift to then go back to the American people and say, hey, we need to risk blood and treasure here for the security of Taiwan. People are gonna say, are you crazy? We didn't do any of those other things. Why would we do this one?
4: Well, you know what it takes us to make that happen is leadership from the White House. You know, we've lacked for the last going on now 16 years by the end of this administration, leadership in the White House. President Obama wouldn't do it. He led from behind as he even said himself, right? President Trump. I mean, are you kidding, right? And Joe Biden, who ever, adults are gonna be in the room now, right? It doesn't appear the adults are a room. It appears we've got, we've sticked with the same foreign policy, which is retreat, you know, not be a friend to our allies, not be an enemy to our adversaries. And one nuclear sub deal does not make a new alliance relationship. I like it. It's the right thing to do. We need a lot more of that. Then we can talk.
2: All right, let's flex a little bit here. Uh, Sarah, you've done some work on trade issues with uh, respect to the environment. One of the big variables in the Biden approach to China is, in fact, the issue of climate change and the work of John Kerry. The administration has said it won't sacrifice any national security or human rights concerns for progress on the climate front, but that just doesn't seem realistically possible to a lot of us. What are your thoughts?
0: This is a great question and one that's unfolding um, you know, in this week, a little bit at the UNGA meetings and, you know, in the lead up to the next, uh, climate cop. I mean, look, we, as the United States, we cannot trade national security or human rights issues for climate goals. It would be short-sighted. It would undermine our position. It would make us look weak. And frankly, I'm not even convinced that if we did make concessions on national security or or human rights concerns, that we get China to back off from its coal fired plant, you know, uh, escalation anyway. So you know, I, I appreciate where you know the administration is trying to make headway and see if there's you know room to cooperate with China on this on this issue of climate change. My personal view, tainted by. You know, my own experiences negotiating on on some of these issues is that cooperation and diplomacy are not really going to work at this juncture. I have, you know, pretty, pretty strong doubts that, you know, China will ever cave to U.S. and allied pressure to walk back its plans. I think for China, it feels like it's already put up a lot. Um, coming to the table and the Paris Agreement, making the commitments that it did. Um, you know, is it unfair for the U.S. to now go back and say, you know, look, we've changed our ambition. So we need you to change your ambition. I mean, it's kind of unfair. I take China's point on this one that we are a little bit moving the goalposts. On the other hand, we're moving them for a really, really important reason, But going about it, thinking that China is going to somehow come to the cop and under pressure of all these countries say, okay, you know, uh, uncle, we'll we'll change our ways. That's not going to happen. I see, you know, I I see a couple of things that that would make more sense. One, it's got to be if if we're going to do anything through diplomacy, climate diplomacy with China on this, it's got to be private. It can't be in the public eye. China's never going to count to us, right? So if we want China to clean up its act and do more, we need to have those conversations with China privately and have it be China's idea and China takes credit. That's, that's firmly how I believe that that would play out. But I'm not even sure that that will work at this point, given all of the other atmospherics and, and, and problems that we have. And frankly, we don't have a lot of leverage. What's our leverage? How are we getting china to 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 do this? What are we offering them in exchange? as I've already said, I don't think that some of the stuff that they care about is a viable political trade off giving that you know saying that we're going to walk back on on some of the human rights matters that that just doesn't that's not gonna that's not gonna work um I do think though and and this kind of gets back to some of the some of what we were talking about we've got to take a position with our allies, where we are isolating China to some extent, we've got to say, listen, we are going to do stuff with this like-minded set of countries that's going to benefit these countries. And whoever's not doing this is going to have some type of consequence, right? That to me is a more viable path forward than, you know, just talking with the Chinese and, and seeing, you know, if they will, if they'll help us out on our new, on our new ambition.
2: Matthew, uh, China is the world's biggest polluter. It dumps more carbon in the atmosphere than any other country, and the numbers are are going up rapidly. They continue to add coal-fired plants to their energy systems at a fairly rapid rate. Is is China actually using its environmental sins as possible leverage with us on these other issues that we care about, like their crackdowns in Xinjiang and Hong Kong? What do you think? You know, I,
3: I think I agree with Sarah here, which is that I don't think uh, China, I, I don't think what the US and the West thinks about China's climate policies is important to China at all. I, I think China has its own reasons for pursuing its energy policy. For example Shanghai is in real danger if ocean levels continue to rise. It's like three to five meters above sea level. Beijing's water table is getting tapped out. Central China has suffered devastating floods this year and, and all of that. I mean China has admitted, that its carbon emissions will continue to grow until 2030 when it says it will heat, hit peak carbon emissions. So what you're talking about like, isn't really a surprise. It said they would be continue to be going up for the next nine years. And uh, China says it will reach carbon neutrality by 2060. So that's in another 30-odd years. So I think we can assume that this is, a, this, is, this is their story and they'll stick to it and whatever the U.S. says uh, won't really matter and we shouldn't waste too much energy or capital trying to secure commitments beyond that. I think we should focus, as I said before, on the major issues, we should ignore the purple ones, central on the focus on the central ones, and that is preventing Chinese power projection into South Asia and the Western Pacific, and turning our major allies into tributes of Beijing. So I think that's where we should focus our energy.
2: Jamil, what's your assessment of how much of a factor climate concerns should play into the things we're pursuing with the Chinese government? Is uh, a, a reduction in Chinese carbon outputs significant enough to us that we should at least contemplate Sacrificing some of these other priorities, or no? I think Sarah has exactly right. I mean, this idea that we would
4: that it would make a difference, even if we did, um, uh, I don't. I think is exactly right. I don't think it would make a difference. And I think at the end of the day, we've got to put we've got to figure out how to rack and stack our priorities. And no doubt, climate change is a priority that we have to keep in mind, and that does have national security implications. I don't. I don't deny that there are national security implications too. A uh, changing climate that I deal with refugee flows and the like. At the same time, a- as an order of relative magnitude, right? If we're talking about our trade situation with China on, on a pound for pound basis, or um, uh, their malign efforts in the region, or what they're doing on, in terms of human rights uh, and the like, um, you know, I think that it is it is hard to imagine uh, that we could tr- we uh, we can or should trade one of those policy matters, um, you know, their behavior with the respect to Taiwan and the like, uh, uh, for climate change. I just don't think that that uh, You know is the right move now uh as 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 both of our prior uh both of our other guests have have noted you know there's this there is this overlap between climate policy and economic policy and, and china's ability to compete in the global marketplace um so I think there is a, a, a place for this, right? I just think we have to rack and stack it in the larger scheme of things. And when it comes down to that question, at least when it comes to China, uh, I'm not sure You know, climate change ought to be near the top of our agenda uh, when it comes to putting pressure on the Chinese um, and getting them to
2: fix what they're doing. You know, the only the only thing I'm going to add to the consensus here is that I'm not sure uh, China's polluting activities are getting quite the publicity they need to get. There's a whole generation of Americans coming up right now. Uh, I know because I helped produce uh, at least two of the ones as part of that cohort, that uh, don't really view China as a big competitor to the United States. They think it's just another way of doing things. And they don't realize that the things that they're concerned about, which includes the environment and climate change, are directly implicated by the behavior of this authoritarian government. And so I think we need to do a little internal messaging and some global messaging about, uh, frankly, China's climate sins. Uh, That should be something that's on the front page every day. All right. Let's, uh, let's flex to our, uh, the final phase of the podcast uh, and talk about the issue that we're each are tracking that's maybe not on the front page of the newspaper. Jamil, why don't you go first? So I'm following
4: the uh, ongoing elections in Russia um, uh, in an unsurprising, uh, perhaps, result um, of Vladimir Putin's United uh, Russia Party has once again uh, gained a strong parliamentary majority, um, uh, online votes uh, have played an important role. So, so no shocker uh, that, uh, that uh, Vladimir Putin's won a significant uh, gain here. Um, you know, look, these, uh, these elections in Russia are are not free and fair by any stretch of the imagination. I think everyone knows that. Um, uh, and, and you see, you see, uh, you know, imprisoned uh, leader, uh, Alexei Navalny talking about that. Um, yet at the same time, you know, Vladimir Putin talks about how he has this mandate. Um, and he, 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 acts and behaves uh, as though he's got a mandate. And the reality is uh, that his mandate comes not from actual votes, but from fear and the fear of the Russian population. Uh, we have seen an increasing uh, drumbeat of concern in the country. Uh, we've seen him lash out against opposition leaders as a result of it. Um, I think there's more to watch here. I think that this, uh, the clear rigging of the election uh, demonstrates that Putin is scared um, and he's worried about his future. Um, and I think that bodes ill for American interest because when in the past, when Vladimir Putin has behaved in this manner um, and seen these things happen, um, he has lashed out. And so I think we ought to be on, on watch for that um, and, and watch for Putin trying to generate stuff outside of Russia to detract from the concerns inside of Russia about his uh,
3: control over that nation. Matthew. Uh, well, Les, I hope you'll uh, permit me to name two quickly. One is I'll be curious to hear what President Biden says in his first address to the U.N. General Assembly. During the opening of UNGA this week, he speaks on Tuesday, the 21st of September. So I think we'll be curious to see what kind of vision he lays out. And second, the the Wall Street Journal reported last week that the Biden administration is preparing an array of actions, including sanctions, to make it harder for hackers to use digital currency to profit from ransomware attacks. I wrote just last week for uh, CNN that it is vital that the U.S. government do more to interrupt the the crypto payment cycle that allows ransomware attacks to be a self-sustaining ecosystem of criminality. That's what I called it. So I'm very curious to see what the uh, actions administration announces in this area. I think it'll be very important for both national security and for business. Sarah.
0: So I'm going to try and knit together the themes that we talked about and talk about high tech, China, and climate in one foul swoop. Um, We are very reliant on Taiwan. For advanced semiconductors, we're building our own capacity up here at home. Um, That has been front page news. Um, But what hasn't is the amount of contribution that semiconductors can make to advancing our climate goals. And I think that as we think about expanding production here in the U.S. and as we think about, you know, creating new market opportunities for U.S.-made chips, we should be thinking about how we marry that with this administration's goals of getting to net zero by 2050 through smart grid, through electric vehicles, water pumps, wind turbines, all of which are very reliant on chips. So, I I think, you know, I've I've heard a little bit of uh, of discussion about this coming out of the administration. Be really interested to see where this goes.
2: So, uh, great. The thing I'm tracking is the crackdown inside of China on capitalists, whether uh, they are industrial titans or uh, celebrities who have been very successful in the pop culture market. The Chinese government is cracking down on successful capitalists in their country. This is a huge opportunity for the United States to drive a wedge between the government in China and those who are being successful in the economy there. It's something that we should be thinking about exploiting at every opportunity. Uh, There are a number of Chinese businesses that are very good at what they do and make money and are not owned by the Chinese government. We should be finding ways to push them in the right direction that's beneficial to U.S. national security and, frankly, to our economy.
1: That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Bridget Neff-Hickman for research assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of National Security's Fault Lines.